good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back two weeks in a row, which is amazing, <laughs> Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning. Don't expect this to happen all the time. No, but, it won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was out of sync with last week uh, for reasons, uh, and so I've stuck with my normal week this week. So, yes, here I am, two weeks in a row. So, there you go. Well, it's the listener's gain, so don't well, worry about it. Yeah, well, hopefully. It's at your expense, <laughs> that's all. Yes. Oh, that's all right. I, I, I don't mind a long drive down in the rain uh, <laughs> at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. It's, it's, it's fine. It's lovely. I like doing that. Uh, but isn't it amazing, the weather? I know. I can't believe this weather. I, I mean, know. I got all my tomatoes in this week, so yes. they're going to settle in nicely and yep. hopefully we won't get a frost next. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past it. Oh, it's most been the most bizarre weather. But uh, I have to say, I always think if you can get well into November before you get any stress for watering, then even if we get a hot, dry summer, it's not a long, it's, hot, dry yes. summer. So uh, I'm feeling reasonably good. If it stays dampish up until the end of November, early December, I'll be... I'll be perfectly happy and my garden will go into the summer looking rather splendiferous, I hope. What's the bet that if this weather continues, we have a lot of callers saying, my tomatoes won't ripen, uh, yeah, well, my capsicums won't ripen. Yeah, well, you've just got to accept that. That's what happens. <laughs> That's you, right. you get a damp season. Um, but in the meantime, your roses will be flourishing and, oh, they and their flowers will be holding on for much longer because it's not too hot. Yep. Um, in fact, I was looking at, a, I was at a, in a garden yesterday, I had a group down from Sydney who were travelling around from uh, Ross Tours and oh, so okay. I was giving them a hand yesterday and they came to have a look at my garden and then we went to see a couple of the big old gardens up on the mount and we went to Durrell and all the rhododendrons and the mollusks and are in flower and the dogwoods are in flower and it's just looking absolutely gorgeous and then we went to Dreamthorpe down the bottom of the hill which is you know quite a few hundred metres difference in height between the two gardens mm. and you got down to Dreamthorpe and the late rhododendrons were still in flower but all the roses were in full bloom Right, um, and again it was looking stunning the wisteria was in flower roses in bloom I mean it was sort of well, it was almost Normandy-esque. I mean, <laughs> everything was green, everything was in flower. It looked just so incredibly good. Mm. Uh, and all of the uh, moss paths and lawns and things were still lovely and fresh and bright green. And uh, it was just stunning. So, yeah, yeah so it's, it's a fabulous spring. Mm. So certainly if you get a chance to go out and look at some gardens, which I know there will be some open today for the Design Fest, uh, and there's open gardens in other ways and means as well of course but it, it would be you know take your brolly and go out and enjoy a garden oh, yes absolutely you know, i mean yep. it's it's lo- actually up our way i love it when it's a bit sort of misty and damp and things like that because it gives the garden that sort of lovely romantic feel anyway mm. uh, and you know if you can't be out digging and weeding in your own you might as well be out looking at somebody else's efforts absolutely so yep. that's what i'd be doing today yep, yep. talking about roses good morning graham sergeant good, from good silky's yeah. rose farm in combinane Good morning, everybody out there. Are you still in bed, everybody? I bet you are. It's that cold, mate. What a shocker. It's not that cold. Yeah. Yes, in fact, I was wandering around in a in a, uh, a shirt yesterday, and, of course, all these people from Sydney, they all had their coats and their scarves, and mm. uh, they were all rugged up looking like Michelin men, and I'm wandering around <laughs> in shirt sleeves, and they're all going, how can you cope with this cold climate? And I'm thinking, well, I thought it was really quite nice yesterday. I it's, thought it was very mild. Yeah. It's called just put some clothes on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're getting reports about gardens, <laughs> open gardens in Yay, and Rotary ran, um, I think they had about uh, 10 or 12 open gardens around the Yay, Alexandria area, and one lady we had in the nursery, she was horrified. She had over 500 people come through her gate, and wow. she she said, oh, 
we're going to have to do this next year. I hope we don't get that many. So. <laughs> she should feel delighted yeah, that well, many people want to visit. And look, I think gardens are more robust than people give them credit for oh, sometimes. Yes. And, uh, you know, the lawn might get a bit worn, but apart from that, everything will be fine. And, and I find most garden visitors, particularly now, seeing as there's a, a sort of a history of garden visiting here, they're very respectful of people's gardens. And, mm. and you know, you don't have, um, well, hopefully you don't have the children screeching through the garden beds and people picking flowers off things and all that sort of stuff. I think people are better behaved than yeah, that these days. I, I, think I really they are. do. I think they respect a garden. Yeah. So I certainly know when I've had my garden open at different times uh, in recent years. I mean, the first times I opened, I had people picking seeds off things. I had all sorts of things sort of that weren't really appropriate behaviour going oh. on. Um, but the public seems to have learnt over the years, I think the garden scheme um, was certainly a great educated them, educated yeah, it did, it did. Uh, of the right ethos when you go into other people's places. Exactly. Uh, so I find most people who visit gardens very respectful. Yep, yep. We've also got to say a very good morning to Virginia Hayward, all the way from Madagascar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and other. Cl- Climbs. I know. I've been everywhere. You've been. <laughs> you've taken a quick world trip. <laughs> I, well, I was away at least two months, a bit more than two months, and it's a long time. Yes, especially so to I, be out of your garden. Absolutely. And <laughs> in Madagascar, I'd call up the age on my if we had Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, if we had some Wi-Fi. And I'd say, Stephen, it's raining. He said, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was quite a relief, wasn't it, to, to know that we were having a damp spring because yes, you could be away without panicking. Yes, <laughs> to be away in spring. Is, and I, I came back and I, just, and I walked into my garden and I thought, oh, my God, it's just looking fabulous. And I expected it to look terrible. Yep. Yeah. But it's wonderful. The roses are superb. The irises this year, they're just... Roses are always superb. Oh, come on. Oh, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be at all one-eyed, would you? No. Salvia's out everywhere. It's, yes. It's just looking absolutely wonderful. It is. It's a, it's a glorious, glorious spring this year. Yes. So, yeah. so, and having been... And I don't mind missing all the, those cold, wet days. Mm. Although one of my neighbours was telling me that we haven't had an excess of rain. We've only just come back to average. Mm. Mm. Which mm. is one of the things that I thought was really surprising because it mm. seemed to me every time I opened Wiffy and got and downloaded the age, it seemed to be raining. Mm. Yep, yep. But um, it hasn't been excessive. In fact, mm. we've gone back to our childhood. Yes. That's exactly mm. right. Yes. But my lawn, what a joke! I don't <laughs> have any lawn. My mm. grass was about four foot high because. Sylvie, who is in charge of mowing, said there was only about three days when she could have mowed and every one of them she was working, so she couldn't do it. And the rest of the time she just, you know, it just grew. Yes, yes. My lawn was looking very meadow-like when I got (laughs) home as well. Uh, At least I've only got a smallish section of lawn, unlike you, Virginia. Yes, I know. Uh, But it still took me ages to cut because, you know, it was so long and there was a fair bit of moisture in the grass anyway. Yes. Uh, You had to go backwards and forwards over it a couple of times. It really needs a double cut. Yeah, and and I took barrel loads and barrel loads of grass off my little funny round lawn. I I don't think I've ever taken so much (laughs) biomass off the lawn. So, yes, it, it takes a while to get it back again well the, i had to i never rake up the grass but this time it was so thick i had to rake it up it yeah. took me nearly a day just right. to get it off yeah. and it filled a whole bin mm. it was extraordinary i can imagine 
but that'll get the compost going. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes, it'll get Certainly. nice and hot in there, and yes, that, yes, that yeah. will be good. And yep. I've got lots of horse poo in the compost, so the combination should be excellent. Oh, it'd be good. Yep. Yes. yes. Your meddler's out in flower at the moment, Yes, Stephen? in fact, they're starting to drop the odd petal now. So okay. So the meddler's in full bloom. Yep. Um, so, and I love the meddlers because they do come out that little bit later than most of your other spring blossoms. That's right. And so they're looking fresh and verdant when the crab apples and everything else are pretty well gone over. Mm. Uh, so they just extend that spring blossom season a bit. So I I think medlars are one of those trees that should be used a lot more. I don't know why oh, more people so don't do plant I. them. They're just such pretty trees. They pay their way in so many different ways. I mean, you've got late spring blossom. Uh, you've got attractive fruit, whether you use it or not doesn't really matter. Uh, great autumn foliage. And if you plant the Dutch medlar, you've got this lovely old gnarly spreading small shade tree, which mm. would be ideal for a suburban lawn or oh, something like that. Uh, and with just a little bit of lifting of canopy as the tree grows, uh, you, you just have such a pretty little tree. Tree. They're mm. just gorgeous. I love meddlers. Mm. So, yes, I don't know why more people don't put them in, but uh, maybe me mentioning it will make We're them... We're spreading the word. Yeah, spreading the word. <laughs> well, how it's a good how big does a Dutch meddler get? Oh. tall? <clears throat> Tall-wise, well, mine would be getting on to about mature size now after about 15, 20 years in the ground, uh, and it would be four and a half metres tall by okay. about five and a half wide. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's made a lovely little spreading tree. In fact, mm. it's got to the point now where I don't really want to spread much more because it's virtually filled the allocated space it's got. Yep. But the other good thing about it is uh, they're prunable, so you can nip and tuck as you need to a bit to control mm. the size and shape of them. So uh, if you are restrained for room, then the Nottingham is the one to go for because it's an upright sort of R-shaped tree. But I don't think it has the same grace that the Dutch meddler has because it gets gnarly and gets that really wonderful aged look about it comparatively mm. quickly. Mm. How do the meddlers going in the fires? Well, they'll burn, uh, mm-hmm. but they're not... Not as volatile as eucalypt. No, no, they're not a volatile no. tree. I mean, they will burn like anything. If you get enough heat on it, you'll burn any tree. Um, but they're not one of those things that has volatile oils and then it'll go off. So no. deciduous trees as a group are actually generally quite good at... Um, uh, stopping the major initial force of a fire. Yeah. Uh, and they'll burn certainly once the heat builds up around them, but they tend not to explode like eucalypts mm. and, and some of the pines and conifers can. So so they're probably good trees from that perspective. Mm. And if you are planting an orchard, they're a nice thing to add into an orchard even if you don't <coughs> use the fruit because they just give you that little bit of uh, added different colour and texture and, and length of flowering period and things. So they just... And that little bit of extra adding to it. Yep. And, of course, you can make a sticky kitchen and get third-degree burns by making meddler paste and jellies and everything else you might want. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. For, for me at the moment, the smoke bush is oh. just... Oh, yes. They, I've got three of them. <coughs> they are just all mm. in flower and looking mm. absolutely fabulous. Yeah, mine aren't quite in bloom yet, but I tell mm. you what, they're loaded in, in bud. So mm. my green leaf one must have hundreds of plumes coming on it at the moment and yes they're reveling in this weather they're growing like mad mm. so the smoke bushes have been particularly good this year mm. medal of jelly how do you make that just like you make <laughs> like you make quince, quince jelly. jelly quince jelly same recipe quince jelly Ooh. oh yummy but medal of jelly must be better well, no. I, <coughs> I have to say i think um if you are into sweet sticky things um Medler jelly or medler paste, I think, has a slightly more complex and interesting flavour than the quince. Yes, it so does. So, if I had my truthers, I'd go medler than in preference to quince. Yep. Um, but yeah, we've made medler paste years ago and jelly and all that sort of stuff, and then realised we don't eat an awful lot of those sort of sweet 
things. I don't have toast very often. But it actually, it actually, if you don't think of it as a sweet, it actually combines really well with a cheese board. Yes, mm. it also cheese. combines with <coughs> with um, some of the meats. Some of the meats. Yeah. Some of your mm. roasted meats mm. um, yeah. goes really well. So it, it doesn't have to, uh, and, and, and you, you don't have to cut make back it. the sugar. Yes, exactly. When you're don't, making it, mm. don't mm. make it too sweet. Absolutely. No, that's right. But, but yeah, so medlar's good stuff. No, the, I mm. think I think medlar's are excellent. It's just a bit messy to make, mm. but mm. I mean, I, I made another lot batch last year. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm. I'm don't know whether I'll bother this year. I might do it once every couple of years because there's only so many jars you need and yeah, get well, through. But, yes, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, no, so you, it's, so you it's could all sw- good. So you could sweeten it with stevia rather than sugar? I don't know. No. No? I, I wouldn't do think so because you've got – the sugar is part of making the um, – yeah, making it more making solid. Making it solid. Uh-huh. Okay. But you also, you also tend to add um, – you know, things like cinnamon and cloves, so it's quite an aromatic paste right. as well. And mm. but besides, the medlar has its own quite strong flavour, yeah, really, it's isn't quite it? distinctive. It's, it is very distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we cra- had a go at once. I don't know that I'd do it again, uh, only because it was so incredibly sweet. Uh, we made medlar full. Oh, Yes. Once and it it ends up being this <laughs> more sort of, fool you yeah well it's I mean fool is mainly cream I know you know so with with some fruit in it and and so you whip it all up and you end up with this sort of caramel coloured um, yep. concoction yeah and it tasted fantastic but by God was it rich rich yes it's you only need a little dollop yeah. uh, it was very strong stuff but yeah it worked quite well so there you go you can do yep. all sorts of stuff with them oh you apart can apart from make, just to appreciate the look of them making gardening interesting and and taking it to that last thing where you're going to a- appeal to people's taste buds yeah and and you don't have to cook with them at all i mean if you want to just once once they've been blatted and they're really ripe blatted Blettered. Yes. You actually let them what's ripen. A, what's the... a blatter? <laughs> you well, leave you don't them have to related ripen. to a letter. <laughs> yeah. Blatting is just getting them to the point where they're almost overripe. They've got to go really ah, soft and right. squishy. squishy. Okay. A yeah. bit like you do with a um, a persimmon. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got to let it get to that point where it's almost on the turn. It's not almost o- about not to oozing. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> virtually oozing. But oh, yeah, right. it's got to be really soft and squishy. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, the medlars are a bit like the persimmons in the sense that they leave. Your mouth all flowery and disgusting if you mm. try to eat them when they're yeah. not ripe enough. Okay. Uh, but but yes, when they're you ripe enough, for... you can just you can just suck on it, eat mm. it, raw. The, the memory of taste, and people have the same memory with the smell of roses. So often, people will come to the nursery and will say, "I remember that it was just like my grandma had that mm. red rose," mm. and it's amazing how long that memory stays in their in their mind for for years and years it can even go back 50 60 years mm. it's just amazing but and do you find they the always remember it as slightly better yeah. than it is in reality yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's because they're, yeah. they're, they're so not attached as good to as it, it and, no no <laughs> but it's it's been <laughs> clouded <laughs> through <laughs> rose colored glasses well they talk, they, they talk about literary license well this is a smelly license <laughs> yes <laughs> okay i really must get to some community announcements because we've got a lot to get through today um, there are a few things happening today. Surprise, surprise. Firstly, today is the second day of the Bromeliad Show. Um, this is run by the Bromeliad Society of Victoria. The uh, address is Phoenix Park Community Centre, which is in Rob Roy Road in Chadston. Melway's reference there is 6902. And uh, it's open from 9am this morning, running through till 4 o'clock. 
Um, entry is $4, seniors $3, and of course there's going to be loads of colourful bromeliads on display. There's going to be uh, camellias, uh, bromeliads for, for sale as well, books and information available there. So that's today, 9 through till 4. Secondly, today the Maribyrnong Orchid Society uh, Festival is in its second day. The venue is the Maribyrnong Community Centre, which is in Randall Street in Maribyrnong. Uh, times are 9 till 4, again today. Entry is $5 and uh, lots and lots of orchids, of course, there for that one. Coming up on the 15th, which is next Tuesday, the Victorian Iris Society have got their late show on. Now, the venue here for this one is Jean McKendry Neighbourhood Centre, 91 to 111 Melrose Street in North Melbourne. Uh, and it's a, it's a nighttime show. The time is 8pm. It's a free show, so anyone wanting to have a look at uh, some late blooming irises, uh, 8 o'clock next Tuesday at the Jean McKendry Neighbourhood Centre in North Melbourne. Okay, as we've already alluded to, the uh, Garden Design Fest is in full swing this weekend. Now, this weekend is covering um, gardens in suburban Melbourne and the Mornington Peninsula. And then next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, it's covering regional Victorian gardens, which include Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo, Macedon Ranges, Euroa and West Gippsland. Now... um, The whole point of Garden Design Fest is that 100% of the monies raised goes to charities. This year they're supporting the Monash Children's Hospital, Sporting Chance Cancer Foundation and the Murdoch Children's Research Foundation. So uh, for a good cause, they guarantee 100% of the money goes to those charities. And uh, designers will be represented in their gardens to answer any questions you might have about uh, the garden design or some of the challenges they met or um, how they achieved a particular effect, etc. So it is a great, great uh, fest to, uh, to go along and have a look at. It only happens once every two years, so uh, make the most of it this year because otherwise it won't come around for another two years after this, uh, two weekends. But um, I did manage uh, to get to two gardens Yesterday, I will quickly mention them because I thought both gardens were well worthwhile. A quick visit if you happen to be in the northern suburbs areas. Uh, the first one is uh, a garden that's been designed by Richard Bellamo. Now, Richard has done quite a few gardens around Melbourne, including um, an award-winning garden for St McCartan's School down on the peninsula. But uh, this is a garden that he's done literally on the banks of the Yarra River in Hawthorne. The address is 4 Glan Avon Road in Hawthorne. And this garden really is all about sight. It's just the most stunning sight you could see. I mean, for, to have a, a new modern house that's all obviously windows looking out on this very sloping um, back site that is literally on the banks of the Yarra so that because it's a sloping site, you get to see the full width and length of the Yarra. So um, so even from inside the house or from anywhere in the garden, you are just seeing, 
um, Yarra River in all its glory. And, of course, in true form, we had to have um, some rowers rowing past just at the right moment, you know, with their coach in a, in a little kayak that? alongside. <laughs> no, I can't always promise the timing, but yeah. uh, it was perfect at the time yesterday. really was. So um, that's the first garden I wanted to mention. Uh the second garden I wanted to mention was um, it must have been an absolute challenge to do something with this particular site uh, because it's, um, it's in Kew. It's actually in 108 Sackville Street in Kew. The designer is Betsy Sue Clark and uh, it's, uh, it contains a lot of eclectic art um, as well, but it's... Uh, the house takes up most of the site, but surrounding the whole house on all four sides is some quirky little spaces, almost like little courtyards that pop up as you as you walk down a side path. It will suddenly open up into a, a courtyard where, um, for instance, on one side they've got a whole entertaining area with their with their um, their wood fired oven there, which had the most stunning sculpture as a canopy over the top of the wood-fired oven, which was actually um, an iron sculptor, sculptor of um, bee, uh, oh. bean vine. So it had the beans trailing and it had bunches of hanging beans all sculpted in, in iron, which had gone a beautiful rusty orange colour. Sounds fantastic. And it was just stunning. So then you, you wander around. Well, the, the first entry in to the front... Behind the front wall is all um, vegetable gardens, raised vegetable garden beds. Um, but then, as I say, you walk down the side, um, there's herbs all the way down. It opens out into this entertaining area. And then you wander down to the back and they've obviously managed to buy um, an extra bit of land that's at the back of the the neighbour's house. So they've managed to put in a whole lap pool in this space uh, behind the neighbour's house. So how they've done that, I don't know. You you wander around to the back and it's been so well designed. There's, there's chooks in there. They've just managed everything. You walk up the other side of the house and um, halfway up where the back door from the laundry obviously opens out, they've got another little little area um, which is virtually just room enough for, for, um, for a couple of chairs and a table but also they've got they've got hanging wall um again with edibles everywhere and an old bathtub underneath it planted out again with edibles so um one of the most productive gardens I've ever seen lots of fruit trees dotted in as well many of them are spaliered around the walls to fit them all in but just a fantastic it just shows what you can do with a small space if it's designed well so again I think well worth a look at two very contrasting gardens if you don't get to anything else I reckon you'd really enjoy having a quick look at these two so uh, as I say one that the one I've just been talking about Betsy Sue Clark is at 108 Sackville Street in Kew and Richard Bellamo's um, garden is at 4 Glen Avon Road in Hawthorne. So, uh, and some of those ones next weekend up in the country, some oh, of the ones up in Euroa. I've just heard the Euroa gardens stunning. are incredible. There's mm. four gardens in Euroa and mm. I've heard they just really are well worthwhile a visit mm. to if you can get up there. So mm. definitely. But the easiest way to find out and to plan your day or to plan next weekend is to jump on their website um, just type in uh, Garden Design Fest and it'll all come up. Or it's officially 
um, gardendesignfest.com.au. But just Garden Design Fest will bring mm. you straight up to the site. You can uh, you can look in if you're looking for a, a specific designer. You can click on designers. If you're looking for a particular garden or the locations of the gardens, click on gardens. It's a very easy website to navigate around. So um, well worth it and supporting some great charities. Okay, while I'm talking about open gardens, next weekend <clears throat> we have two gardens opening for Open Gardens Victoria. Uh, now... The first one I want to mention is uh, in Stockyard Hill, which is uh, by Beaufort. Uh, Now, I know this is out in the country a little bit, but it's a garden well worth mentioning. The actual address is 3802 Geelong Road, Stockyard Hill. And uh, the garden itself is Mawalloc. Now, this is a rare opportunity to visit a historic Western District property. It's a 2.5 hectare garden. It was designed by William Guilfoyle in 1909. And you can wander through the paths and lawns. There's vistas across a lake, which was designed by Sir John Monash. Um, at the bottom of the garden is a six-hole golf course, would you believe? Most D- gardens have got a six-hole oh, yes, golf course, yes. haven't they? <laughs> With a helipad. And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a ha-ha wall which divides the garden proper from the golf course, mm. just as in we've seen ha-has in... Uh, yes, in, in Normandy uh, and things. In Normandy, yeah. exactly. So, um, so that allows, of course, the unimpeded views from the house to the lake. So um, it's, it's not often open to the public. There will be refreshments, uh, lunches available to buy, local wines, produce, plants, or uh, you are invited to take a picnic and enjoy it on the lawns. Uh, <clears throat> on on Sunday of next week, uh, renowned Byron Bay chef Samantha Gowing will actually be conducting uh, cooking demonstrations using produce from the vegetable garden at the house there. So demonstrations will be at 11, 1 and 3. And uh, all proceeds from the opening will be going to Skipton and Beaufort Hospitals and the local CFA. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's one if you want a trip out to the country next weekend. The other one opening next weekend, again for Open Gardens Victoria, is in Brighton. This is St Mervyn's. It's at 3 to 5 Black Street in Brighton. It's opening 10 to 4.30 both days. Entry price, of course, is $8. Uh, and this is uh, a garden designed by Andrew Stark. It's, um, this is a very formal garden, beautifully maintained, um, highly stylized plantings of things like buxus, laurel, magnolias, gardenias, very perfumed garden, um, lots of hedging. It also has an impressive selection of imported urns and pots from Provence and Spain, and they're all planted with topiary buxus. So a very, very formal garden if uh, people would like to go and have a look at that sort of um, garden design. Now, um, Open Gardens Victoria have again very kindly offered us one uh, free double pass to go to the Brighton Garden of St Mervyn's. First person who likes to phone in uh, can get that uh, double free pass. The number to ring is 94190155. That's 94190155 to get a free double pass to go and have a look at the Garden of St Mervyn's next weekend. Okay, uh, just two more I really must mention. Uh, I've been We've been talking about the Kangaroo Paw Festival for a couple of months now leading up to this. But um, you are fast running out of time 
to get to the symposiums because bookings close this coming Tuesday, the 15th of November. Now, I mentioned last weekend that um, prices have been reduced uh, to give more people an opportunity to go to uh, one or more of the days of this symposium. The symposium takes place 24th to the 26th of November. Day one is taking place at Mueller Hall in Melbourne there, but it's uh, geared towards botanical, zoological and horticultural uh, speakers talking about kangaroo paw and its relatives. The second day, day two, is geared towards breeding, marketing, design, cultivation and diseases. This will take place down at Cranbourne Royal Botanic Gardens in the Tarnook Room. And uh, day three is specially designed for home gardeners, again down at Cranbourne in the Tarnook Room. And this is for kangaroo paws for home gardeners and enthusiasts. So the costs uh, for day one is uh, members of Botanic Gardens, friends, $100, non-members, $130, students, $75. Now, this includes lunch and refreshments. Uh, Day two is the same pricings, $100 for members, $130 non-members, $75 for students. Day three for the home gardeners, um, $80 for members, $100 for non-members, and $75 for students. So... um, All of that, as I say, bookings do close this coming Tuesday. And also don't forget, of course, that on the 19th, next weekend, uh, there will be um, the Kangaroo Paw Picnic, which is free to the public. Um, There'll be the launch of Angus Stewart's new... um, New Landscape Violet uh, Kangaroo Paw. There'll be uh, special plant sales. There'll be floral art demonstrations. There'll be live music. Um, There'll be Best Kangaroo Paw competition and lots of displays by sponsors and public gardens in the Melbourne region. So the picnic is next weekend uh, on the Saturday. The symposium is 24th to the 26th of November. And, uh, of course, I should mention, if you do want to uh, jump in and book for that symposium, uh, either go online to symposium at rbgfriendscranburn, all one word, .org.au. So that's symposium at rbgfriendscranburn.org.au or phone 9725 3569. That's 9725-3569. Six nine. Okay, it's more than time that we opened up the uh, the lines for callers. If you'd like to uh, join us this morning, do give us a call. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. And it looks like uh, Roger has just rung in to say that uh, that live music that was planned for the picnic. Uh, won't be able to take place. That band won't be available. Never mind. I'm sure they'll they'll come up with plenty more happening on mm. the day at the picnic. So that's all good. All right. Um, Stephen, you brought in quite a few plants. We've got a chance to yeah, talk and, about a few. And there is sort of a theme. Uh, and the theme okay. this morning is ground covery plants that aren't too rampageous and difficult to maintain that could, in fact, be quite good plants to grow with bulbs. Because bulbs, of course are lovely when they're in flower, but they spend quite a lot of time underground, so you can end up with a bare patch. 
And, of course, as they're going down, they can look pretty they can unattractive. Look scrappy. <laughs> yeah, they can look pretty scrappy. Uh, so you need something that's sort of green to grow with them so that when the leaves are starting to collapse, they're not so obvious as they would be if they're on bare ground. And, of course, that there's something there that will fill the season in when the, when the ground is, would normally be bare of bulbs. And also something that's robust enough to cope with the fall of leaves dropping down on top of them uh, because some ground covers, if the say the daffodil leaves or whatever or the bluebell leaves fall down over them, it tends to swamp them. Mm. So it's quite a lot of – it's quite a big ask to have a ground cover that's manageable, tough, attractive. Bulbs can grow through so that it's not too competitive. Yep. Um, and so I brought down a few things that could well fit that bill. So it's, I think, a very specific sort of topic. And I'll start off with one of the, the, the slightly more interesting and, and potentially frightening plants. Uh, it's a variegated form of ground elder. Now, ground elder is a dreadful weed. Um, so you've got to be really, really careful about having the green one in the garden because it's quite hard to get rid of. The variegated one is a milder plant and it will stay put more readily, but it will still creep out and make quite extensive colonies. tends to die down in the autumn, early winter, but then the bulbs are coming up at that stage. And right through the summer months, you have this quite pretty grey foliage with a uh, silvery white edge around it. And in high summer, it gets little clusters of white Queen Anne's lace-like flowers. Okay. So it's a very pretty plant. Yeah. It'll grow in shade. It'll grow in, in, in sun. Um if the soil's a little impoverished, it actually controls it a bit. If it's really good, rich soil, it'll take off like a rocket. So you could end up with quite large colonies of it, which is fine if you've got large areas to cover. Mm. You know, so it's a plant that, you know, you need to fit the plant to the spot you're putting it in. So uh, the ground elder is a lovely plant. Unfortunately, its botanical name's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, it's I, it's Agropodium podraria variegata. Goodness. Yeah, and I struggle to say it, as you can tell. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, I could see you're struggling. Yeah, I am struggling. It's one of those names that I find really hard to get my tongue around. If anybody's – I mean, variegated ground elder will take you to where you need to be. But um, if, in fact, you want the botanical, I'll spell it out because it will make it a little easier. It's A-E-G-R-O-P-O-D-I-U-M. So that's Igropodium. Uh, pod, podagraria, which is P-O-D-A-G-R-A-R-I-A, and variegatum, of course, meaning variegated. So I'll stick with variegated ground elder when it comes to that particular plant because uh, otherwise it's really hard to say the botanical name. But it's a really pretty thing, and I've seen it used quite a lot in Europe as a ground cover in gardens, but you don't see it planted here very often. It's, it's, I have to say, Stephen, it's a very, very um, delicate um, variegation. It is. It's it not, almost just yeah. looks like you're in dappled sunlight. Yeah. It's not taking over and no. being because some can look really ugly. Yeah. Well, this particular one in semi shade looks particularly good because yes, it, it brings would. a lot of light and colour into a shady corner. Um, but it's not for the timid gardener because it can make quite large colonies, okay. and if you're not happy with it, it can be quite hard to get out again. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but certainly, from the point of view of being a good ground cover for over bulbs and things, it would be ideal. Deal, um, and I guess the other one that, in, in in its own way, is quite an interesting plant that would make a good bulb ground cover, is this little plant which is called Rubus rolfii. And anybody who knows their botanicals will know that Rubus is the genus to which blackberries belong and raspberries and loganberries and, and all those things. So it's actually an ornamental blackberry, I guess. It comes from Taiwan. It only grows two or three centimetres high. 
creeps along the surface. It will root down as it goes along, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't tend to go underground and then come up again, which can oh, be a bit of a good. problem with yep. some ground covers. Yep. So, you know, a sharp spade can keep the edges neat and tidy. Okay. Uh, and it's grown basically for its foliage. It does get little white blackberry-like flowers on it. I've never seen it actually produce any fruit. I don't think our climate's cold enough for it to set fruit. Um, but it has these really pretty dark green wrinkly leaves, which mm. I, f- I find very appealing. And if you're in a really frosty area, uh, although it's evergreen, uh, the foliage in the winter will often get coppery, bronzy colours to it through okay. the winter when the frost hits it, which I find that sounds very lovely. pretty. Yep. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting and unusual ground cover that you don't see grown very much. Uh, again, it will grow in sun or through into comparatively heavy shade. Um, it won't colour in its foliage unless it's out in the open, and it won't perform well out in the open unless it has some moisture in the ground. It's not completely drought tolerant, so it will it will sulk if it doesn't get enough moisture. Uh, but it doesn't need to be kept wet, wet, but um, it just doesn't like to dry right out. Yep. And it also is tough enough that if the bluebells or the daffodils leaves are falling all over it, uh, it will cope. Yep. So it's so there's two. One's a blackberry and one's a ground elder, which is a bit of a worry, but um, <laughs> but they're both very useful plants in the right place. Fantastic. We must go to a caller. We have uh, Rebecca, who's out in Listerfield. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi. Go Hi. ahead. Um, look, I was wanting to ask um, Graham a question. Um, I... I have five princess and roses that um, are behaving really differently to all the other roses. I have about 50 and I pruned them pretty much the same, um, of, you know, the same sort of type of rose. And um, the princess Anne has grown beautifully, um, but the laterals seem to be more lateral this year. And with the winds we have, um, I've noticed I've had a lot of um, branches broken and it's happened to the Princess Anne more than any of the other ones. They've lost one or two, some of the other roses, but um, my five are almost uh, flattened. And um, I was just wondering if I've done something wrong with pruning those or whether the season's um, lending itself that way. Do you have any ideas, Graham? Um, w- well, with Princess Anne, that's a recent release. Um, it's been out for the last two or three years. Yep, that's yes. right. And it's a yep. David Austin? Yep. Yes. Yep. When did you prune it? Um, late. Right. Um, How much did you take off? Uh, a fair bit. Right. Okay. Like, um, I pruned it. Uh, um, I try and follow your, your advice, and Diana's to be yes. sort of quite rugged with it, and right. I took it down to probably, it wouldn't have been any higher than 30 centimetres off the ground. Right. Okay. Did I prune it too hard? Um, it sounds like you, you might have been a little bit too drastic. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and have you got any flowers on it at the moment? Uh, they're looking they're looking stunning. They're all in um, bud. Yes. And some have opened, but um, as the branches break, of course, it just all dies. And right. some of my some of the roses um, have just been left with one branch. Right. Okay. Um, we had pretty strong winds here at Listerfield, but yes. you know my other roses have stood up to to the wind really well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, it's just I just noticed that this year the growth has been quite sideways, and right. um, I don't know, it just couldn't it just couldn't take that sort of wind. Tell me, how high is it now? Um, about one metre, maybe one point two. All right. Um, this might sound a little bit counter counter um, what we first talked about, but yeah. my suggestion to you now is come back and trim back along the along the branches, 
go yep. back in the old language, anything up to about 18 inches. Yeah, I'd okay. figure what that is, yep. Yep. And um, I would also um, try and get some liquid seaweed on them. Yep, yep. I have but, been doing your program, but not as not as um, regularly because it's so early in the season. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you can get some liquid seaweed on them, use, use the organic uh, liquid seaweed, and yep. so that should strengthen up even the stems as well. Okay. Okay. Do um, you reckon they're just uh, they're too high um, to to cope with conditions, and I should just bring them back? Yes, to bring them back. the plant. Yeah, I would say that the wind is your your real challenge. Graham, I've had the All same right. trouble this year. Yes. I pruned quite hard, which mm. means I've got very some very long mm-hmm. shoots. And because the wind's been so violent, yeah. uh, I actually think I pruned too hard. Yeah. If it had been another year, it wouldn't have mattered. Mm. But mm. such there's been such growth. Yes. And having pruned so hard, the growth's so long, I'm finding mm. I'm losing roses. They're snapping mm. off in the wind. Mm. Well, that, that gr- growth that we're talking about is, is their, their water shoots. Yes, exactly. And what you can do with the roses, you can ca- trim them back by two-thirds, mm. okay, which will strengthen them up. But I suggest you do that now while you've got plenty of leaf growth on the plant. Because yeah. remember, your leaves are the factory of the plant. Yeah. Okay. Um, don't leave it and don't hesitate. I would do it now. Okay, I'll do it today. I mean, I'm going to have lots of beautiful cut roses, yes. so that's um, yeah. that will be that will be. So fabulous. you'll have to ask all your friends round. Yeah. Oh no, I've got plenty of vases. I can tell you. Okay. Um, can I can I ask another question to an, um, another another issue I have? Yes, yes, go ahead. I have a weeping rose, and um, I bought a ring, um, a metal ring with the rod, and planted it really the the rod planted really deep and the rose at the right height but even so with all the rain we've had um, it's keeling over Um, so how do you make roses like that look um, nice with supports that are in addition to the rose ring Um, do you have any recommendations I was actually thinking of having to put a post with concrete and all that sort of thing um, near it but it's going to start looking a right. bit ugly. Okay. How, how long has the weeper been in? Um, this would be its third year. Okay. Well, what what you what you're probably facing is if it's if it's um, becoming unsettled in the ground um, yeah. it, with the with the um, the water that we've had, it's tended to make things soft around around plants and roses, especially. The yeah. same things happened in part of my garden as well. Yeah. Um, what I'd suggest to you is to get. A star picket, a long one, and yeah. take it in down, down parallel with the um, the upright on the ring and pole. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and drive that in, and then um, wire it or, or, or attach it to the actual pipe that's the pole. Yeah. But and pull it back to straighten it up as you do it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Get someone to stand back and and sight the um, the pole itself. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's a really good suggestion. Thanks so much, Graham. Okay. Bye. My, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Well, I'm delighted to uh, welcome into the studio Nick Rose, and Nick is the Executive Director of Sustain, the Australian Food Net Group. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Um, we're here, obviously, to talk about a very special forum that's happening next weekend, but first of all, tell listeners a little bit about Sustain. 
Sustain is Australia's meta-food network, so we're articulating the local food networks and coalitions that are emerging around Victoria and nationally in support of a vision of a sustainable, resilient and fair food system that works for all Australians. That's, <laughs> that's a big statement. Um, in, in practical terms, what sort of groups um, are you working with? Well, we're building on work that's been undergoing in Victoria for probably 10 years now in this area, going back to Vic Health with its Food for All Food Security Project. This right. is 2005, 2010 that supported food security mapping in about 12 local governments across the state. That was followed through federal government funding under its Preventative Healthcare Task Force under Nicola Roxon back in 2009-10, which led to a statewide program called Healthy Together Victoria, which was supporting about 14 local councils to carry out health promotion work. So we're really building on those foundations, I guess. That Healthy Together Victoria program left seeds in a number of local councils, such as Bendigo, Wyndham, Cardinia, uh, Mildura, where there are local food networks emerging of urban gardeners, producers, farmers markets, health promoters, teachers. Uh, so building on those foundations, working particularly with local government, we see local government as really understanding that it has a role to play in supporting uh, community gardens, urban farming, uh, also local food economic development, uh, in contrast perhaps to state and federal governments, which really see this whole sector as about just any other part of the economy and about you know boosting productivity and you know growing, boosting more commodity crops for exports. Uh, talking about free trade, that they tend to talk at it about it just in those terms. So we're really about the multifunctionality of the food system and how fundamental it is to our health and well-being and long-term sustainability. And working with uh, institutions, particularly local governments, particularly schools now with the new food studies program that's coming in next year at Year Eleven and Twelve for all Victorian high school students, a really significant development, uh, a food literacy paddock to plate food systems uh, program that's going to be available for the first time in this state. Mm -hmm. I, I know that uh, some of the councils have been really quite active in this area, particularly I'm thinking of um, City of Yarra, also Moreland Council. Um, they've been encouraging um, all sorts of people to get out there and, and, and just utilise um, free space to start growing produce. And, of course, we've had, we've had uh, a lot of uh, support within the school movements for, for the growth of school gardens. Um, I presume you're also encompassing things like community gardens that are, are springing up everywhere, farmers' markets that are, are really trying to emphasise local producers to sell their produce. That's, <clears throat> that's right, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, City of Yarra, you mentioned, has had an urban agriculture strategy. It's one of the leading local governments uh, in Australia in this, in this field. It dates back now a few years, and they've actually resourced that with uh, two urban agriculture facilitators who are there to support... Um, householders and community groups to, you know, do planter boxes and verge gardens, which is why you see these sorts of things appearing on the mm. streets around Collingwood and Fitzroy now. Um, also, the city of Darabin has uh, a couple of years ago introduced an urban food production strategy and implementation plan working with the food leaders in Darabin. Um, city of Melbourne has got a food policy that, you know, there's lots of uh, really great outstanding examples uh, around, around uh, Melbourne. And of course, at the School Gardens Network on our board, we have Ange Barry, who's the CEO of Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation, which is just down the road in, uh, in Collingwood as well, that have now uh, got kitchen gardens planted in over 800 schools, 800 primary schools around uh, the country. So yeah, this is very much a, a, a growing movement. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Um, I know. I know. Even that uh, some councils have been 
allowing local residents to, to virtually claim um, some of the laneways around Melbourne and, and green those up and, and get planter boxes City and things of Yarra. happening. Yeah, that's yes. right. City of Yarra Fantastic. just introduced the laneways guidelines yes. uh, policy for exactly that reason. Uh, I think one of the most exciting things that's happened in this space recently is down the road at um, the Victoria Park railway station with the fair share garden in Abbotsford. I don't know if uh, you or your listeners might have been down there, but if you haven't, I suggest you go and check it out. Two acres of unused um, land adjacent to the railway uh, down there, Vic Track land uh, that has been made available with uh, funding from RACV, with collaboration from Melbourne Water, City of Yarra, 3,000 acres uh, and and fair share to bring that land into production and growing root crops and uh, for uh, use in the kitchens that fair share used to, to make that produce into healthy meals for people in need. And I think that's one of the really you know big opportunities for urban agriculture and around Melbourne. We have a, a bit of a taboo subject in Australia, which is that we've got you know two million people who struggle to put food on the table each month. Uh, food Bank Australia says over 600,000 Australians access emergency food aid every single month. Um, you know, with with changes to welfare benefit policy, uh, with the way the labour market is, this is a, a growing problem. And there's a huge role, I think, for utilising, um, you know, vacant land in our mm. inner city neighbourhoods to, to do exactly those kinds of projects and get really good, healthy food to those who need it. Mm. Do you also talk to, I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a separate movement in a way, but it's still providing um, food uh for people and that's that's um, bringing in some of the restaurants and cafes with their mm. leftover food and that's then being recooked if you like and, and distributed. Um, do you also include that? They may not be actually growing the food but they are still managing to provide the resource. Sure. Um, uh, so I'm also part of uh, a new national coalition called the Right to Food Coalition which actually draws attention to the fact that uh, all Australians uh, are entitled to the best possible food, regardless of who they are or their life circumstances or their income. That's enshrined in international law, uh, economic, uh, cultural and social rights covenant, uh, 1966. Our government signed up to it in 1976. Uh, so, you know, the, there's a big role to play for food banks, second bites, those who are, you know, repurposing um, surplus produce or mm. uh, out of restaurants. Um, but I think it's also important to say that you know, we shouldn't be relying on those kinds of emergency mechanisms to ensure that people can eat well. This should be something that uh, people should be able to access good food at all times and not be dependent on handouts. Yes, um, so that's a really important, uh, important point to make. Yep, yep. Now, let's get back to the conference that's coming up next weekend. Yes. Um, now, this is a big one. It's actually uh, called the Australian Urban Agriculture Forum. It's all taking place at Burnley College. That's right, yep, Burnley campus uh, down in uh, near Richmond. Okay. Uh, yep. And you've got a fantastic lineup of speakers. I was very impressed to see some of them. What is the aim of the forum? What are you hoping to achieve out of it? What we're hoping to achieve are a few things. One is to, um, I guess, really celebrate the achievements that, you know, um, many people in this state and nationally have been working on for many years in the space of community gardens and, and backyard food growing and say, you know, there is an urban agriculture movement in Australia. It's substantial, it's growing, and it has an important role to play in the sustainability and well-being of our cities uh, for the future. So that's the first thing is really recognition and acknowledgement and celebration. Uh, second one really is to... And again, you know, from our perspective as sustained working with local government,
government is to get a lot of local government people there from different uh, departments uh, across different councils around the city to, I guess, to, to show to them what their role is in, in supporting uh, people who are wanting to grow food in, in their private and, and community spaces, what kinds of policies and strategies and enabling mechanisms they can put in place and highlight the great work that's being done that we've already talked about by City of Yarra and Darabin, both mm. of whom will be speaking at this, uh, at this forum, and then to identify you know, some obstacles because local government can't do everything. You know, there are things that can and should be done by state government and federal government, particularly in terms of the planning framework, in terms of resourcing. Uh, so to say, where are the key obstacles and blockages in this uh, in this area and what can and should uh, these higher tiers of government do and how can we come together as a movement to build a reform agenda uh, to make some, you know, to make some key demands, particularly looking to 2018, which is the next state government election in Victoria. Mm. I know uh, just uh, on this program we've had uh, a couple of listeners uh, phone in um, from time to time and they've, they've struck uh, a problem with their local councils for when they were wanting <coughs> to plant out their nature strips, for instance. And it seems to vary widely between the different councils as to what councils will allow people to do on their nature strips. Uh, I think some of the councils are, are worried more about occupational health and safety from the sound of it than, right. than actually, you know, managing to grow some, some edible produce. Yeah, that's right. I think we, uh, we see a lot of risk aversion, I think, in mm. local governments. Um, and, and, you know, I, I used to be a lawyer, so I kind of okay. you know, blame the lawyers a little bit with this and uh, <laughs> people in the insurance industry that perhaps, uh, you know, that the fear of litigation looms large and people slipping and all these kinds of things. But, you know, I think the bigger risk that, you know, certainly people in this studio and your listeners probably understand is things like climate change and food security and sustainability going forward. I mean, those are the really big challenges that we need to be confronting and mm. making our cities more edible is a great way to do that. Um, one of our keynote speakers, uh, Deborah Solomon, coming out from Amsterdam, her her um, uh, collective is called Urbania Hoover, which in, uh, is Dutch for the city as our farm, which I think, you know, that really encapsulates what this is all about. It's trying to make our cities as green and sustainable and, and as edible as possible. Mm. And of course, by greening up the cities, you're also, you're also cooling the cities. Absolutely. It doesn't just have to be about food. Absolutely. In fact, the Mayor of Paris uh, just a couple of weeks ago set forward a target that by 2020 she wants 100 hectares of green roofs and walls in Paris, of wow. which a third are to be edible. So Fantastic. that's like an aspirational visionary target that you know, shows you know, what can be done when people set their sights high and aim high and we pull together in the same direction. Yes. Now, just, just looking at the list of other, other uh, speakers you've got coming in, uh, for instance, I noticed you have Pam Morgan. Now, she was the original driver behind Collingwood Children's Farm, um, which is a fantastic resource for people here in, in Melbourne. And I know uh, it's on the must-do list for a lot of families to take the kids down to Collingwood Children's Farm on a weekend or whenever they can get there. Uh, I see you've also got uh, Moray Gamble, who's uh, very well known as a speaker, um, and she's one of the leaders behind the North East Street City Farm, uh, Crystal Waters Eco Village and Seed International. So um, both very, very interesting speakers, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, and also we've got um, uh, the people behind Sydney's first urban farm, Pocket City Farms. That's Michael Zagaridis, uh, an urban farmer, permaculturalist. Uh, and just picking up what you were saying before about restaurants, um, they're uh, repurposing uh, urban spaces there, such as bowling greens that, that are no longer being used and turning those into you know market gardens and selling that produce into restaurants. So 
uh, as well as um, you know, as well as the dimension of food security, like Fair Share are doing here in Abbotsford. I think there's a really also important opportunity to uh, have this as a you know as a commercial activity, a small business, a way of creating employment and training opportunities uh, and lively opportunities for young people uh, through uh, you know creating those kinds of business relationships. Uh, in when I was going to the United States, places like Detroit and Chicago, I saw people, young people, doing this, uh, selling their produce uh, into restaurants and also what they call community supported agriculture, which is you know um, boxes of fresh seasonal vegetables uh, to local residents. So super local, super fresh and, yes. and sustainably produced and food. And of course, one of the things that's happening here is that we're finding old bowling greens turning into flats because we need more flats in Melbourne, don't we? Of course, yes. It's a, a contradiction. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think there's a, a real need to start sort of thinking more strategically about these spaces and, and really valuing the, the green space and open land that we do have and, and using it for productive purposes. And mm. Melbourne City Council, of course, is taking the tree thing very seriously, which is a wonderful move, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good to see some leadership there. And I've noticed that they've just uh, been given some money to green up four of the laneways in the city centre. Oh, fantastic. So that's all going to take place very shortly too. So um, there, there is exciting um, movements. There's exciting and positive things yeah, happening. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so I just want to also mention, as well as the actual two days of the forum itself on the Sunday and the Monday, we've got on the Saturday, the 19th of uh, November, an open garden day, and we've got about 15 gardens that are registered uh, mainly around the inner north, uh, both community gardens and some private gardens. Um, this also links into the Darabin Harvest, Backyard Harvest Festival that's happening oh, okay. uh, over the, the following week. Um, so you've got opportunities to see uh, gardens like Cat Lavers, who teaches the My Smart Garden program at Hobson's Bay, but has an outstanding... Um, uh, an outstanding productive permaculture garden uh, in her home. You need to make that appointment by private arrangement. But, um, yeah, an opportunity to see some of Melbourne's hidden treasures in terms of backyard mm. productive spaces. Mm-hmm. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. How do people um, get involved? How do, they, how do they book tickets to go along? How do they find out about these gardens, for instance, that are opening up? Well, it's all on a, on a fabulous website called uh, www.uaf.org.au. The Urban Agriculture Forum uh, website, so you can see there the program, the speakers, uh, the listing of the gardens on the Open Garden Day. Also, we've got a dinner on the Sunday evening, 20th of November, with uh, the co-inventor of the Flow Hive beekeeping technology, okay. Stuart Anderson, who yes. uh, last year he and his son Cedar managed to raise, I think, about $18 million in eight weeks to, to commercialise that technology. Um and yeah, details for booking tickets are all on on that website. On links that links website. through to the try booking website, so okay. you can book you know for one day, for two days, for the dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, the the visits to the gardens are free, and you organise that yourself. Is there not not all of our listeners um, have easy access to a computer? Is there a phone number for more information? They could they can ring. Yeah, they can ring me. Uh, my numbers are nine six zero six two one zero four during working hours, and mobile zero four one four four nine seven eight. I'll just get you to repeat those if you wouldn't mind. Yep, 9606-2104 and 0414-497-819. Terrific. I will give out those numbers again uh, towards the end of the program. Um, It would be remiss of me to also not mention um, another speaker quickly uh, because we've spoken about uh, his book um, on this program, and that's Bruce Pascoe. Absolutely, yeah. He's no, Bruce... author of Dark Emu, which yeah. is um, which has really got a lot of people talking. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's a, a very very important book. I had the 
the privilege of meeting Bruce Pascoe when he came to speak at a dinner that we organised a couple of months ago on, on another issue to do with sustainability of the food system, and that's community food hubs. Um, Bruce spoke at a dinner in front of 140 people in Bendigo uh, on the 8th of August and talked about his work with uh, with Dark Emu. And as I'm sure you've already discussed, you know, that's a book that every Australian should be reading because it's rewriting the history of this country before 1788. Absolutely. And showing that Aboriginal people were actively managing landscapes and uh, cultivating grains and managing livestock and aquaculture and, and indeed was, as Bruce says, the, world, the world's first bakers baking bread over 20,000 years ago. Yes, yeah. it's just incredible. Mm. Um, so just to repeat some of the details, so next Saturday is the Open Gardens. That's right. Um, they run what? Opening? All day, yeah. I think series, uh, some of the series gardens will be the first ones around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And that will go through till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You can see the listing of the gardens and it's really a self-organised uh, tour. So yes. you choose where and when you want to go. You see the hours that they're open. Uh, all of that is free. They just have the cost of your own transport. Um, and then the forum itself kicks off at uh, 8.30 on Sunday morning at Burnley campus of Melbourne University and goes over two days with a dinner in the evening uh, on Sunday the 20th of November here in Smith Street in Collingwood at Craft & Co, which is uh, just on the other side of uh, Johnson Street. And what, what sort of costings are related to the forum? So for those who are on low incomes and engaged in um, gardening, urban agriculture, we've got... Uh, uh, kind of a special price of $80 for one day or 130 for two days. Uh, then those who are working in not-for-profit or small business, it's um, – I haven't got the exact figures in front of me, but it's uh, more in the order of I think uh, 150 for one and 220 for two. And okay. then for, for local government and larger business, it's 200 for one day, 350 for two days. Okay. Yeah. And that includes uh, the catering, I should say, will be fabulous uh, local organic produce from Kinfolk Cafe, which is down at the bottom end of Burke Street near Spencer Street. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, good luck with all of that. And, and hopefully hopefully, there's a lot of positivity that emerges, out of, which I'm sure there will be, because as I say, some of these speakers are just um, really inspiring people. And I hope it really revs up the whole movement because it's it's a great thing to do and more cities around the world should be should be really trying to get on with it and do it. Well, and, and indeed they are. You know, I think it's, uh, it is a growing movement and surveys recently in Australia show that more than half of us are now growing or raising some of our own produce in our own spaces. So mm. I think, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's such a wonderful thing to be doing, such a great thing for our kids to be learning. And, and yeah, it's, it's, we're very much hoping that uh, this does generate momentum and, and really gets everybody behind it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for coming in this okay. morning and all the very best with it. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks, Nick. All right. That, uh, if you'd like to join us this morning, we are running through until 9.15. Uh, do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. We go next to uh, Ellie, who's in Armadale. Good morning, Ellie. Oh, good morning. Um, I have some uh, very sad pelargoniums. They're zonals, and I thought they were indestructible. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're all, all the leaves are going yellow, and I've noticed this in um, uh, my neighbours' gardens as well. Um, it's, I'm sure it's not lack of water, uh, or, uh, sorry, that uh, they're not getting waterlogged because we're on very sandy soil. So I'm sure it's just going through. I have noticed that um, they're not looking like that in gardens where they're a bit more uh, in a little bit of shade. So do you have any suggestions? 
I think just wait and see because the um, all that group, all the pelagoniums are, are actually heat and sun loving plants, and it just hasn't been heat and sun loving enough yet. Mm. So I think you'll find most of them will start to recuperate once you get into some slightly more stable, warmer weather. Um, I'd certainly not hesitate to give them all a light dose of sea salt or one of those products now. Yeah. Uh, that will help them a bit. Um, and as soon as it looks like we're going to get some warm, dry weather for a fair, fairly extensive time, it may even pay to trim them up a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. The peltatums are fine. Yeah, well, peltatums are quite a different sort of group of pelagoniums yeah. and they, they cope with quite a different group of uh, – or different sort of gamut of, of requirements. They tend to be a little more cold hardy. Um, they tend to grow through the colder months more, uh, whereas the zonals and the and the regals tend to need that really warm weather to settle them down. Yeah. My zonals are, are all flowering their heads off, but that's probably a desperation act. <laughs> yes, it, it could well be. I mean, you know, they, they look at the world and say, this isn't going the way I like. Uh, maybe I should set some seed. And so they'll, they'll go into mad flowering. But um, I think you'll find once the weather warms up a bit, they'll be better. I mean, we've, you say they haven't been overwatered because you've got sandy soil, but in fact, although they may not be sitting in water, they're not getting, the ground isn't drying up enough for them. And yeah. the soil's not going to be warm. No, and the soil will be cold and 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 dank, and um, and so th- they're just they're just not happy with life at the moment. So enjoy the things that are enjoying this weather, and in due course, your pelagonium should start to come good again. Oh, I'm glad about that. You've cheered me up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, they're they're generally speaking pretty tough plants, but uh, it is funny when you've got a really mild, cool, and damp spring like we're having. That's just the weather they're not really keen on. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Okay. That's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. All right, and uh, next up we have uh, Jill in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Hi, Pam. Yesterday I gave a talk to the Royal Horticultural Judges on how to judge herbs in garden club shows, but I also made the suggestion that garden clubs, when they have their shows need to add edible plants, um, you know, that are grown either from indigenous plants or from weeds to their schedules because that, in a way, is the reality of looking at um, a more sustainable attitude through garden clubs to to, uh, foods. Right. And I think, you know, it's a very small part, but, I mean, that gentleman could definitely work through the um, garden... um, garden clubs and remember garden clubs have people who are 90 years old and my own garden club folded because the people who'd been running it for 48 years were tired and none of the younger people wanted to or could you know they were too busy to take on the responsibility and so you know if garden clubs need to go on they need to have a new dimension which I think has to be in a sustainable food side of things mm. because people are interested in food you know there's television programs and so on have made people more aware of food um and anyway that was my idea to to make garden clubs rethink their schedule in and you know start small and yep. move on okay all right thank you okay bye Ah, Stephen, we've got one more ground oh, cover there. Well, actually two. Two, okay. Uh, but anyhow, uh, be that as it may. Uh, another plant that I use quite a lot in my garden uh, as a ground cover for bulbs and, and other small plants is a euonymus 
called Euonymus Fortunii radicans. Again, another slightly difficult name. But it's a trailing plant that never gets particularly dense, so it doesn't swamp anything, so bulbs can come up through it. It'll follow the contours of wherever it's growing, so it'll spill down banks or it'll grow flat along the ground. It'll even push itself up the side of a wall or a tree trunk slightly. So it's one of these sort of really free-form plants. Um, It has very dark green foliage, rather narrow, and the centre of each leaf has a white vein down the middle, uh, and the white veins sort of generate out slightly to the sides of the leaf, so you get this rather pretty marbling Mm. effect in it. Uh, It doesn't have any flowers of any note or it doesn't do anything else of any particular note, but it just makes a really pretty sort of light, airy sort of ground cover that gives you enough greenery to soften bare ground, uh, but not so much greenery that bulbs and other things won't come through. It does raise the point, though, that if bulbs and things can come through a ground cover, it probably means weeds can as well. Yes. So you can't get a really dense ground cover that'll smother weeds that'll also be bulb friendly. Yep. So there is that sort of payoff, unfortunately. Uh, this particular plant will grow in sun or shade, and I've actually used it as a ground cover where I've got the little cyclamen growing. Oh, okay. Uh, the little wild cyclamen, because they will come up through it. Uh, the marbled leaves of the cyclamen and this go together, so it just becomes this sort of mosaic of interesting mm. marbled foliage. And then when the cyclamen go down, the euonymus is still there to, to do its thing. Mm. Uh, are, the, are the cyclamen the same as cyclamen? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, it's just that I pronounce it properly. <laughs> um, Question, Stephen, if it's a euonymus, does that mean that it colours beautifully in autumn? No. Uh, it's a solidly evergreen euonymus. Uh, some of the Euonymus, uh, you're, you're quite right about. The, some of them are deciduous and colour superbly in the autumn. In fact, it's an interesting genus because Euonymus have trailers, climbers, shrubs, small trees. You have solidly evergreen. You have solidly deciduous. Uh, some that have particularly attractive berries or fruit that they form on them. Uh, others that are grown for the autumn foliage. There's even one Euonymus alatus which has grown as much as anything for its wings of corky bark on the stems. So there's a huge diversity of shape, form, colour, texture, uh, and so forth within Euonymus. Most of them are rock-hardy, uh, so they're all tough plants in general. Um, so they're, they're a group of plants that probably just haven't had their sort of day in the, in the limelight like a lot of other groups. Um, and you certainly could do worse than to plant a range of different Euonymus in the garden. I mean, if you're collecting camellias... They tend to all be evergreen. They tend to all have a sort of a camellia-like look about them. So if you have too many camellias in a garden, or dare I say a lot anyway, then they can become rather dominating. I was going to say roses, but I thought I'd leave Graham out. (laughs) Oops, where did that come out? Um, Getting getting left out again. Yeah, well, sorry, Graham. Uh, But Euonymus is one of those genera that um, has such diversity amongst the species that it can't sort of become top heavy in a garden uh so you know by collecting a range of different forms uh they'll all look quite different nobody coming into your garden would pick that they were all from the same genus really and they are some of them are just so wonderful in autumn oh the the autumn colored ones are fantastic uh this one of course not being one of those but in its own way being a very useful um plant i think it's just uh such a pretty ground cover um uh, it doesn't become a problem. Uh, It grows mainly from the original root system so that when the stems go out sideways they don't tend to root down very much so you don't have a lot of root system competing with other things around it. Uh, It's it's, great for weeding because you can just pick them up and weed all the way underneath. Exactly, you can sort of lift up the whole canopy and get in there and weed up. I like plants like that. So (laughs) I think the Euonymus fortunii variety radicans uh, is a very, very useful plant. In fact, I meant to bring in one of the other Euonymus 
Fortunii forms that I grow, because this particular one, the one species can in fact be climbing, ground covery, or in fact shrubby. So there are different forms of this one species that can cover almost all of the different okay. gamuts. But there's one called Cuensis, uh, which has tiny little leaves that are about half the size of an English box leaf, uh, very dark green, and it grows very, very flat to the ground. And when it sort of starts to get mature, it starts growing on top of itself and it eventually builds up waves. Oh, right. So you get these yes. incredible green waves that stick up in the garden. And although it wouldn't be a good ground cover for bulbs because I think the bulbs would be too overbearing and would probably swamp it, uh, um, uh, as an interesting textural ground cover plant in the garden, Cuensis is an amazing thing. I don't know another plant that grows in anywhere near the sort of shape and form that it creates. So they are a really interesting group of plants, the Euonymus. Um, in fact, some of the tree and shrubby ones have other uses. I mean, Euonymus europius, the uh, spindle from um, Europe, uh, has a very hard wood and they used to actually use it for making spindles for spinning wheels and hence the spindle tree okay. name. Yep. So, yes, there's lots of uses for you, Euonymus out there, although making your own spindles is probably a minor use, but nonetheless, <laughs> you could. Why not? And rolling pins, apparently very good for rolling right, pin there wood. there you go. Uh, not that I've tried it. So, so that's the Euonymus and I guess the final one I brought along is a periwinkle, which is another group of plants that there's some seriously weedy Very issues weedy. with. Um, uh, Vinca major, uh, the the major periwinkle, is a real weed problem. Mm. And you'll see it growing along road verges and in the bush and all over the place, and it's an absolute pain in the neck. Uh, big blue flowers, which are quite handsome, really, and that's why it's here, because it came in as a garden plant. Uh, it's found its way into the bush, mainly due to naughty gardeners who discard garden refuse instead of properly dealing with it. Um, so they dump trailer loads of agapanthus and periwinkle out into the bush, which drives me insane. Um, but nonetheless, it's got out into the bush now, and it is in lots of places, and it's a major issue. Vinca minor, the lesser periwinkle, isn't a pest in that way. It makes a very good ground cover, gets blue flowers like the, the big one, but smaller, smaller leaves, and it makes a much more restrained ground cover plant that doesn't seem to have the propensity to get out into the wild. And, Certainly, and it's been when, around. when does it flower, Stephen? Mainly in high spring. Okay. Um, and the one I bought in today is a variegated version called uh, Illumination, which has gold centres to the leaves with uh, a green edge. It's really attractive. It's a beautiful yeah, foliage. And when it's got its blue flowers, the gold yes. variegation in the blue flowers is striking. No, it would be. Uh, and again, like the Euonymus, it will trail. And I've got a, a big urn in the garden at home that I've got a big prickly poya growing in the top of. And I planted Illumination around the edge of the urn. And it's up on a plinth. I suppose the urn would be nearly two metres above ground level. And the periwinkle has now spilled all all the way down around the outside of the urn, and it looks stunning. Mm. Just so you can get thing. those rhyming words, can't you? Prickly poya and periwinkles. Yes, and it's all getting a little bit too much of a problem. It's like having a you know a, a potato <laughs> patch, and a, you know we're, we're getting into alliteration all over the place. But well, anyhow, th- those rhyming words is what allow people to remember plant names. Yeah, yeah. and well, Dr. Seuss is an expert at that. I noticed my grandkids; they love those rhyme, rhyming names. Oh don't yes. They? Yeah, well, periwinkle is one of those plants that shows up a lot in literature, actually, because it's an old sort of wildflower from Europe. Um, And I can remember as a child picking the flowers of Vinca Major and sucking the nectar out of the back of the flower. And if you roll the flower tube, the um, female part of the flower comes out and it looks like a fairy's paintbrush. 
Mm. <laughs> Try it sometime. And the, and the periwinkles, no, no relation to the periwinkles you find in the bay, the shells? No, no funnily no, enough, no. 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 <laughs> no, there's absolutely no relationship between the two. Although, did you know that they thought that uh, the um, things that grew on the bottoms of ships' bases, the yes. sort of periwinkly things, they thought uh, grew into geese once? Yes. Oh. Yes, if you look at Gerard's herbal, uh, they think that those things became geese. I don't know why, um, and apparently nobody believes it anymore. Barnacles. Uh, yeah, barnacles, that's we, the word I was need, looking for. We need yes. to do some DNA testing. Yes, that's right, yes, and, and see if barnacles actually become geese, but uh, apparently not. Um, so anyhow, the lesser periwinkles uh, or the minor periwinkles, I think, make good garden plants. Again, they can cover quite a reasonable area, but they're easy to control with a sharp spade. Yep. Um, uh, illumination lovely with its golden green. There's another silver-edged one called uh, Ralph Shugart, which is also blue flowering. You can get a white-flowered version with green leaves. I've also got a double sort of crushed burgundy-coloured one uh, called Elizabeth Cran, which is rather lovely green-leafed. And I use it as ground cover in the garden at home on awkward little banks where you can't water things easily. Um, uh, I find my car controls the edge of one of them uh, as it drives Mm. up the driveway. (laughs) So if it comes out too far, the tyres of the car tend to deal with it. Uh, And they're just useful because they'll grow back into the shade so they you know you can get ground cover under dense shrubs with them Uh, they're dense enough that leaves will drop down amongst them and won't smother the periwinkle so when you've got deciduous leaf fall some ground covers tend to get swamped out by the deciduous leaves so I think the lesser periwinkle is certainly a good garden plant, but I would never recommend planting the the no. greater periwinkle in anybody's garden. It is an absolute thug. Mm. It's, it's dreadful. I think that the gold in that leaf is actually mm. really rather beautiful. Yeah, mm. it is. It's a really nice Very variegation. Catchy. I think even people who are not overly mad keen on variegated plants mm. uh, will find this quite appealing, particularly in the semi-shade where it sort of lights up a dark corner. Mm. Uh, and the combination of blue and gold is just gorgeous. Mm. In yeah. fact, I've planted a whole pile of this in what I call my blue and yellow border, which is sort of an area where most of the flowers are blue and yellow, uh, but it's more about foliages in my garden anyway. And although it's not working terribly well at the moment because they're looking a bit iffy, I planted some yellow-flowered aloes, and I've undercarpeted them with this periwinkle. Okay. Uh, and if the aloes, they seem to be starting to shoot back again, but they only went in last autumn and they obviously aren't as cold hardy as I was hoping they were going to be. But they're a yellow flowered, one of these modern hybrid ones that are getting around, uh, called Moonlight or some damn thing. Uh, and I have underplanted it with this periwinkle. So if the aloes really do take off, it should make a really lovely combination with mm. the yellow aloe flowers and the sculptural plant. And then this mat of the variegated periwinkle with the blue flowers underneath mm. it. So the plan is good. Whether it comes out at the end of the day as as good as I'm hoping, we'll see. Yep, excellent. So they're the plants I brought along this morning. Fantastic. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time. Uh, we must go next to uh, Bernie, who's out in Langwarren. Good morning, Bernie, and thanks <clears throat> for waiting. Good morning to you all. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yes, two questions, please. A waratah. Uh, it's sort of flat, well it's flowered beautifully but um on the way out now it's lost its luster as it were um how far should i cut it back and when should i uh, prune it 
Well, the cut flower trade pruned them by picking the flowers, and that keeps them nice and compact. Uh, so if it were my Waratah, I'd probably half prune it by picking flowers and enjoying them in the house. Uh, and then the rest of the flowers should be taken off once they are, in fact, finished. And you need to, if you look at a Waratah, you'll see sort of rings of leaves uh, up the stems with a little bit of a gap between. Uh, the rings of leaves are one year's growth. Uh, so you need to go back at least one year's growth to the next set of leaves below where the flowers are, um, and even two sets is quite a good idea. So be a little on the vigorous side with the pruning. Um, apart from anything else, it does give you nice long stems to pick for the house, uh, and unless you do prune them a little bit, they are inclined to get quite leggy, and eventually, like like proteas, they'll get so big and leggy and tall, you'll get one decent storm and the whole thing will peel out of the ground and fall over. Well, that's basically what it's doing. Mm. Now, when you say um, the leaves, in millimetres or centimetres, how far should I cut it back from the flower? Well, this is the point. You don't know how far that is because it's dependent on how much it grew each year. So you've just got to go back two sets of leaves. Two sets of leaves. Yeah, there'll be a set of leaves just below the flower and then there'll be another set a little lower down with a bit of a gap. And so you go down to that third set. So you take two sets of leaves off. Okay. Uh, and go down to that sort of uh, just above that third set because that's where all the dormant buds will be ready to shoot again. But how tall that is in centimetres is very dependent on the variety, where it's growing, all that sort of thing. So it's really just go back sets of leaves. Fair enough. Um, yeah, okay, that, that, that's fine. Good. Um, yeah. Now, the second question, please, is um, roses. Now... I have a gold medal. It comes out in a beautiful gold colour, yes. um, but then it fades to white. Right. Now, when should I uh, should I cut the flower off when it's faded, or wait to deadhead it? No, um, I, I trim it back as soon as the flower starts to to get that faded colour. Gold medal tends to do that in our yes. in our hot yes. weather, um, and you need to trim back along that stem at least. At least a foot in the old uh, language. Yes. Okay. Somebody told me you go back to five leaves. Well, yes, you can go back to five leaves. That's fine. You're doing exactly what they do at Flemington when they trim back. And you'll get flowers back on that, that part of the bush within 50 days. Oh, good. So I might get another autumn show. Yes, for sure. Oh, well, thanks very oh, you'll much probably get If you do it now, you'll probably get two lots. Okay, good on you. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank okay, you. then. Bye. So gold medal tends to turn to silver medal fairly quickly. A bit, a bit like that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, in some ways it's a bit sad if you're planting something for a particularly rich colour. If it fades yeah. rather quickly, it does lose its impact a bit, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a bit sad. Or get stuck in or trim it off. Yeah, well, yeah. that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Okay, uh, next up we have Hugh in the Yarra Valley. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning, Victoria. i got two questions to Dr Graham. The, Mike, the first question is very much the same as what the gentleman was talking about before. Now, deadheading. What is the proper way of deadheading? No, there's, there's no point in deadheading, Hugh, because usually when you deadhead just with the little bud off the top, it goes back to a, a, a blind shoot. You need to go back along the stem again at least a foot. Okay? All right. Didn't they say it's something like five nodes or something? You can go back to to five, to five leaves down the stem, yes. Five leaves? Yes. 
Yeah, right. Now, hang on. I've got to write this down. Right, five leaf. I got that. Yes. Now, the second question is, you gave me the name once before. I got, I got um, wild roses galore. Yes. And I think you called them Carina? Canina, uh, Rosa Canina. Rosa Canina, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do you spell that? C-A-N. C-A-N-I-N-A. I-N-I, okay. Yeah. All right, now, I got Caninas Galore, yes. and some of them, would you believe it, come out of the concrete path. Yes. But the concrete there is, is, is a very, very loose concrete, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, they come out of there not just by one, two, or three, they just come out by the dozen. Mm-hmm. Now, I have, and they have, in some cases, grown to six, seven feet, yes. right? Yes. Now, uh, they, with the wind and, and rain and so on and so on, they fall over yes. and hit me in the face. Right. So I have pulled most of them away. Yes. But the real question I have is, I like to go back to the stem, which is about oh, around an inch, you know, 25 millimeter, two and a half centimeter, something like that. Yes. Now, my question is, I like to graft, but in a saddle graft, um, I... Uh, uh, I want to put on some some other stock yes. and stopping perhaps the wild grouse that always comes from the top of these thick stems. Yes. Now, my question is, when can I do a saddle graft? Uh, you might not approve of a saddle graft. No, that's that's fine. You, you could do that now, Hugh. I can do that now. Yes. Yes. And I can put on it something like sea foam or anything like that. That's or, right, yes. Uh, which which varieties? I got quite a number of varieties. You got anything um, particular? Um, S- sea foam is beautiful. Sea foam will get, as you know, as a climber, and it'll, it can get quite big, yeah. huge, but a little bit rather prone to black spot, though. Okay, yeah. another one. Um, you're looking for, say, a white. Oh, any, any color. Oh, look, I'd go back to you know iceberg. You, you'll always get a great display. Yes, okay, well, what I thought of doing is uh, perhaps uh, from the roses I have picked the ones I like the most and then yes. just take a tip cutting of that and, yes. and put it in a saddle graft. Well, use the ones that you like. It's your garden. Yeah, okay, but um, uh, some people put me sometimes on an idea, you know, which I didn't think of. Yes. And now, if you just have another, another one you particularly like... Uh, well, as I said, iceberg is really good. If you want want something to graft onto it, you can use um, uh, Mainer fir, which is a real good um, uh, grower. Say again, Mainer, Mainer fir. Uh, how do you spell that? Um, it's a German name, Mainer fir. Ah, oh, Mainer. Uh, M M A I N A H U. Yes, you're very good at German spelling. <laughs> no, it's not that. It is not that at all. Yes. Uh, mine now, it is. It is very, very sad that yes. that mine that nobody when they go to Europe goes to mine now. All right. Now mine now, to the best of my knowledge, is a is a town or, or huge village or whatever, something like that, on an island, and the island is called. Uh, well, in German, it's called Bodensee. In, 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 in Swiss, it is Lake Constance, yes. and so on and so forth. And there is this huge rose farm on these huge rose gardens. Yes. 
and they go back for centuries and centuries. Yes. And they have the rawest festival, but I never ever seen in in, in garden magazines or anything like that. You, that you, budding and grafting is now beginning with roses, and it's a good time to do them. Yes. Well, I, I can do budding. I got a French budding machine, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yes. But I'm 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 much better in in hand grafting, saddle grafts, and things yes. like that. Okay. But uh, it, it is really sad if anybody has the time to go to Minor, yeah. and they're also similar, very very close to Minor. They they have these gigantic um, uh, conferences on banking. Yes. Anybody who's in banking, yes find out when the banking All right, right, you um, I would suggest you get grafting and budding now if you can, we've got other people waiting on the board yeah, okay, for us. I'm going, bye bye Victoria, Thanks have you. a nice day, bye Thank bye you. Bye uh, Let's go to uh, Bronwyn who's in Lindhurst Good morning Bronwyn oh, Hi everybody, we love your show um, I've got a question about worm tea and I was having a discussion with the bloke last night and about the difference between what comes out of the bottom of the worm farm and then I we Googled, Googled did a bit of Googling and they were saying that the worm tea is actually the vermicasts soaked in, a, in water and you leave that for 24 hours, but that you shouldn't use the stuff that comes out of the bottom of the worm farm. Why not? Which Why they called leachate. I, I don't disagree. know. There was this, all this discussion about it that it was anaerobic oh, and for that. Goodness it, sake! It's it's a fertilizer. Yeah. Well, so I been, would use it. Yeah. So we've got bottles of it, like probably fifty liters in, you know, juice bottles that we mix with sea salt and. Yeah, water. It's perfectly fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, it's fairly benign. I mean, it's hard to overuse things like uh, uh, worm casts or worm pee or whatever you want to call the stuff that you're getting out the bottom. Um, and even if something is produced in an anaerobic form, once it gets into the air and is in the garden, it becomes aerobic. Yeah, okay. So do you know how long you can store it in the bottles and does it you matter if it's You can store it, but I, I would use it immediately. Yeah, I can't see any reason for storing. Yeah, but we've got like 50 litres of well, it. Well, then I, I tell you, I don't I don't um, dilute mine. Mm. I just, just take it out it and just throw it in the garden. Mm. I'd start throwing. Okay. Yeah, there's no need to, to – I mean, even if you've got 50 litres of it, I mean, that's not an awful lot when you put it over a whole quarter acre. Yeah. You know, and so, and then once you get rid of your fifty liters, as you get more, I just use it as you get it. Yeah, yeah. and use it way. fast. Yeah, because I think any of these things are generally better for the garden uh, when they're in a fresher state than mm. if they've been held on for a long time, because some of the nutrients and things will will dissipate with time. Yes, uh, yeah. it's like when they say old manure. Um, I'm not sure whether that comes from old cows or not, but um, uh, I don't. I, I'm quite happy to have dried manure, but in fact. If it's old manure, as in it's been out in the, in the rain and weather and so forth for a long time, all you're adding to the ground is, is humus because most of the nutrients are gone. Mm. Uh, whereas if you've got dried, fresh manure, um, that's got all the nutrients still in it. And if you use that round the garden, you get far better results from that than you will with really old, weathered manure. Yeah, okay. Good all luck. Right, well, thanks Start for that. throwing. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay, have a good day. All right, bye. bye-bye. And uh, next up we have Pam out in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. 
Good morning, everybody, on this wet Sunday morning. <laughs> bit damp out there at Kyneton, isn't it? It's a bit damp, yeah. Stephen. Never mind, we'll live to fight another day. Yeah, and look, you might not get much gardening done today, but it's going to have its repercussions over the next few weeks, so yes, it's worth it. I have to it. do the housework. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got no excuses now, uh, unless, of course, you need to go off and see some nurseries or gardens. Yes, that's right. Anyway, Stephen, I wanted to ask you about Eremuris foxtail lilies. Mm. And I've got your second book, and I know it's in your second book, yeah. which I was delighted to find. And I um, managed to purchase three of them yeah. over a year ago. So they were reasonably large-sized, oh, what, what do you call Eremuris? Are they corms or whatever? Uh, anyhow, well, they're, they're sort of a root tubery sort of yeah, thing. I don't know. I'm not quite yeah, sure what you should no. call them, but anyhow. So I planted them in my front garden, which is which was very brave of me because it's pretty hard there, mm-hmm. and they flowered. Now, I planted three, and two flowered last year, and they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got two flower stems up again on the same plants this year, mm-hmm. but the third one, once again, has not flowered. So, yeah. so that's not had a flower stem on it. Can Do you I don't, know if that I... means it won't? Oh no, will eventually. Huh. Yeah, they all I can say to that is huh. Yeah. I have tried to grow them time and time yeah. again, and I find them very difficult. If you've had two flowers last year and you've got two coming this year, you're doing well. Yes, Am I? yes. Go you, to you, the top of the class. Yes, you, sh- you <laughs> should be reveling in it. Um, I've done something right. Yeah. You sure have. I <laughs> just can't grow them. No, they're, they're one of those plants that either you strike the right spot for them in a garden yeah. or you don't. Uh, and although they have sort of specific requirements, uh, in a sense, um, they seem to make their own way if they're happy and they'll just die promptly if they're not. Um, so if you've managed to flower them, there's no reason why the third one, if it's still alive, uh, yeah. won't come into flower in due course. It's just being a bit recalcitrant. Um, but whatever you're doing, don't change it because as soon as you do, you'll kill your airy murus. Um, and, um, uh, and just revel in them. And hopefully over a period of time, the individuals that you've planted it will actually clump up and, and hopefully you will get multiple flower spikes from the one plant. Oh, wouldn't that be heavenly? Yes, it would rather. Uh, but they, they can be a difficult plant. I grew them quite well in my garden in Macedon for several years mm. and then the area where I had them got far too shady and they just slowly faded out uh, and I wasn't quick enough to do something about it and lift them and shift them because I didn't really have anywhere to shift them to. Uh, so I've sort of given up on them because I don't really have a, a sunny enough spot to, to grow them well. Um, but they are stunningly beautiful beautiful things if you can grow them with these huge tall candles of lovely flowers in various shades depending on which one you get Mm, i didn't care what colors did you end up with i've I've only it's all the same it's just like that pale apricot yellow oh yeah yeah so it's probably cleopatra or pinocchio or one of those named cultivars i don't even think they had a yeah yeah but they're lovely plants and and yes you're doing well and the third one won't be a blind plant at some stage it'll settle down and say all right it's time to flower or more likely like in my garden it'll just decide to have enough and die yeah okay and and worm that lady talking about her worm tea and that yep. god I just use mine everywhere mm. and the and you know how the the um the, the what is it that they call that comes out underneath the worms like all the that's thick not the juice the other part. the castings yeah the castings mm. I put a big handful of that under each tomato plant I put in or each mm. yep. zucchini I put in and I reckon it does the soil and everything. You know, 
Absolutely. Oh, it does. It definitely does. My vegetables with a big, huge clump of it yep. underneath. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much once again, everybody. See you okay. later, Bye. Bye-bye. All I can say is I'm jealous. Yeah. yeah. Erymuras are one of those exquisitely beautiful plants. Uh, and if anybody wants to know what they look like, just Google foxtail lily and see what comes up. Mm. They come. They grow naturally in Siberia. Yeah. Oh, it's some really weird places. Mm. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, northern Iran. And they grow up in the mountainsides. And the goats have eaten everything but the Erymuras because they won't touch the Erymuras. So you see these sort of barren sort of desolate places with these candles, the very mirrors sticking up out of nowhere, and they are remarkable-looking things, mm. but they can be very challenging to grow. Mm. I think my soil just must be too rich for them. Well, they do like a, a slightly impoverished soil, and they do certainly need a really well-drained one, and they certainly need to be dried off during the summer months when they're dormant, which can be a bit awkward if you've got other plants growing around them that you're trying to water. water. Mm. And so, and they leave a big hole when they die down because you can't allow anything to grow over them because they they need to have a proper baking in the summer. Uh, so you almost need to have them planted towards the back of a border where you've got some low bushy things to hide the bare patch later. It's really quite difficult to not only make them happy, but then also make the area in the garden not look unattractive when yep. the area mirrors aren't doing their thing. Yep. So, yeah, they can be a difficult plant. Having said that, I know somebody over on the other side of Melbourne who's got themselves seeding through their lawn. Oh, <laughs> good. So, you know, it can happen. You know, it, <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, sickening, but there you Stephen, go. What can you say? That just makes me want to weep. Yes. And wouldn't you love to have that many airy mirrors that you could just whack flowers off and take them and put them in the house whenever you oh. felt like it? But anyhow. Never go. mind. Graham, you've brought in a rose. It's a stunning-looking rose. Yes, Pam. And it's got a bit of a story to it. It's got a story to it. It's, it's one of a series of roses that's been bred by Chris, War- Chris Warner in, in England. And uh, the series so far have won three gold medals in the Rose Trials in Adelaide. Um, to, to describe to the listeners, it's a single flower, a number of flowers, anything up to eight on a branch. Um, it's, this particular one is, is a pinky, um, creamy colour going into a dark mauve centre, eye centre, and rather reminiscent of the, um, one of its original species that uh, grows, they tell us, from Afghanistan right up to... Uh, Siberia in Russia um, and it was developed originally by um, Jack Harkness in England and uh, I remember him talking about this or oh, probably around about 25 years ago Okay. and so Chris Warner's taken it further and, and uh, released this rose it has a perfume a, a gorgeous perfume um, and looking at it now it's got um, new shoots on it while it's still flowering and there's there's eight to nine new shoots so it recovers very quickly and it's flowering mm. which is a real feature um, and, of course, the, the, the great thing about it is, is it's healthy, of course. It wouldn't win a gold medal unless it was really healthy in the rose trials. This particular rose's name is um, Your Eyes Only. And, of course, the eye um, depicts what actually happens in the centre of the flower. It does look like actually an eye. But it does have a very interesting perfume, as does the other uh, four or five in that collection. Okay. So it's a really and tough So they're rose. all developed that dark centre like the, the wild species they're bred from. So they've yes. all got that sort of bicolour yes. look. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, Peter Beals, who's, who's a real specialist in, or was a real specialist in old-fashioned roses, has said that we need to get to the old-fashioned roses and come back into breeding. Otherwise, a lot of the new releases won't be around in 20 years' time because of the health and the vigour. Right. And the interesting thing is that roses, of course, come through South Africa now. Uh, quarantine requirements, 
and um, Ludwig Techner in South Africa in his newsletter has been talking about how he's been very ruthless in, in his trial gardens. He's got about 300 roses in his trial garden, and if they get mildew or black spot, he says he just pulls them out and chucks them in the chipper, they're gone. So they don't get released into Australia or New Zealand or, or the United States now. So we've been waiting for this in the rose world for a long time. Mm. which is really good. Now, as a plant in the garden, do they make a reasonably compact, bushy sort of shrub, Graham, yes, these, yes. these new ones? Yes, some, some are a fraction bigger than others. Mm. You could even hedge this if you wanted to. Yeah. It would hedge up well. So it could get up to one and a half metres in height. Yeah, well, that's a good size. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, not mm. too outrageous. Manageable size, yeah. 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 Mm. So, and, and I take it because it recovers quickly from fl- uh, when it flowers and you've got the new shoots already coming. Uh, with a little bit of light pruning after its first flush, it would just mm. keep going. Yes, mm. yeah. It, it's, uh, if it's established after two, you know, say three years, you can just run over it with a hedger and just clip mm. it back with a hedger. Mm. That sounds easy. It's a a really lovely rose. Mm. It's got loads of character, which which I think is really good. In fact, to me, it almost has the characteristics of Rosa mutabilis, at least with this one, because Mm. when the flowers first come out, they've got a distinctly apricot-y colour about them. Mm. Then they go to that soft shade of pink with the dark eye. So there's like you've got several colours through the flowers, Mm. depending on the age of the bloom. Mm. Uh, And I find that quite appealing. I think that's Mm. a a Mm. great feature. Yeah, very soft on the eye in our garden, especially mm. in Australian gardens, where we need that softness, mm. especially in the summertime when, of course, the roses are flowering again. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, a move in the right direction in the rose world. Mm. Yes. I think single roses have been very badly neglected, to be quite mm. honest. I mm. think they've got a lot going for them. Yeah, mm. and it's interesting that, you know, centuries of work have gone into producing these incredible full double sort of the old hybrid mm. tea type flowers and things, mm. when in lots of flowers we've gone back to singles because yes. the singles have the natural charm of the wild species. Yes. There are also better plants to have in the garden if you're trying to encourage insects into the gardens mm-hmm. because mm. uh, bees and hoverflies and things can get into a single flower yeah. and get at the pollen and nectar and so forth of the single flowers, which in the case of a lot of doubles they can't. Yes. So, you know, if you've got single dahlias, single crizzies, single roses, uh, single hollyhocks, all those sorts of things in your garden in their single form, it's actually more environmentally friendly because you're encouraging the pollinators mm. and mm. insects that require the nectar and, and, and pollen. Mm. So single flowers in a rose should work just as well as mm. single flowers and all those other plants. Mm. Yep, yep. Well, of course, the other thing that we really need to encourage more is birds. Mm. And the, the bird population is, is really a challenge for us to keep um, birds and their their species still going in Australia, and um, you'll get honey eaters and other things that will go to the roses as well, mm-hmm. which is really important. Mm. Yeah. You used to have a single red over your shed. Yes, which unfortunately which got too too shaded eventually and died out. It was Altissimo. That's right. Which I'm really fond of. I think yes, it's a lovely, it's lovely single rose. But yes, it worked really well on the shed while there was enough light, but the trees have sort of grown up around and, and over. And so what was a sort of a sunny, northerly warm on, wall on my anymore. shed <laughs> rarely sees the light at all. So yes. poor old Altissimo faded out slowly. Mm. Uh, I'd like to plant it again, though, if I can find yeah, a spot. if you could where, find a spot, yeah. because that used to just look stunning. Oh, it's a mm. wonderful rose, and it flowers. Flowers and flowers and flowers. I think yep. it's a lovely. It has thing. a red colour that's very, very significant, mm. doesn't it? It's, oh yeah, it's yeah. a really vibrant colour, and, mm. and yeah. it's a, a big single with lots of flowers in a head. So you get these nice mm. big heads of flowers mm. on it. So when it's in good bloom, mm. uh, it's very telling. 
So yes. I think Altissimo is a fantastic old rose. Is it still available? Can, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we see, sell a lot of it. You do, yeah. The other rose great that, rose. That's, that's a good, great single Australian bread is Nancy Haywood. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I've got Nancy. One of your relatives, was it, uh, Virginia? No, it's Hayward. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I've got, got it going up one of my gum trees, and yeah. it is beautiful. Yes, yes. Absolutely beautiful. Well, bred by Alistair Clark, and it's got Rosa Gigantia in the breeding. Ah. And, of course, Gigantia is what gave Alistair Clark's roses the, the, the ability to withstand drought. Mm. He, you know, he grew so many in that granite country around Buller, mm. and, and they didn't su- roses didn't survive there unless they were really drought tough. Mm. And Nancy Haywood, Lorraine Lee, those roses. Well, the, I yeah. think Nancy Haywood's wonderful. I was mm. just looking at it yesterday thinking, you are stunning and going mm. up a gum tree, mm. which mm. is, you know, not easy. Mm. No. But no. She's, she's beautiful. Mm. I have to say, growing gu- uh, roses up gum trees was one of my ideas at one stage until the possums found them. Mm. <laughs> yes. Then I ended up with leftover barbed wire. <laughs> yes. Because I, I tried Kifskate up through one of my oh, yes. gum trees, and it was fantastic for yeah. the first few years. I mean, it, it quickly got up 30 or 40 feet up into the gum tree, mm-hmm. and because I've got a two-storey house, you could look out the upstairs windows into this cloud of Kifskate when mm. it was in flower mm. until the possums discovered it, and mm. then all you end up with is one or two little clusters of flowers right mm. out on the very ends mm. where the where the possums couldn't get at them and the rest was just big prickly stems yeah. and eventually I had to go in and attack the tiger and pull it all down which was a huge job um, but there was no point because the possums just were beating me yeah. the whole time yeah. I couldn't win mm. fair so, enough there you go okay quick reminder to listeners uh, firstly uh, we were talking earlier uh, in the program to Nick Rose uh, executive director of sustain about the Australian urban agriculture Forum coming up next uh, Sunday and Monday. Uh, now, there are open gardens on the Saturday as well. If you'd like more information or to book for that forum or the gardens, go to uh, www.uaf.org.au or if you'd like to phone uh, Nick 9606-2104 or his mobile 0414. Four nine seven eight one nine, And also a reminder, if you've got nothing planned today, do get out and have a look at some gardens for Garden Design Fest. Um, there's loads and loads and loads of gardens for you to, uh, to choose from. Uh, of course, all the money is going to a wonderful cause and there'll be more regional gardens opening next weekend. So do support it. It only comes around once every second year. So it's, it's a great, great way of having a look at uh, other people's gardens and talking to some of the designers. We've run out of time. A big thank you to Liz, who's been handling all the phones again this morning. We'll be back, of course, at uh, 7.30 next week. Until then, bye for now.